Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that despite of our sinfulness and our wretchedness, uh, you have bought us with his blood and made us forever his. Thank you for the assurance that we have in him. And so from that point, Father, help us to come as we look at your word on this issue of your judgment. Um, Please help us to see what you have to say to us here. Uh, Please open our hearts to what you're saying. Uh, Please drive us back to the Lord Jesus and the promises you've given us in him. So we pray that your spirit will be doing that in each of our hearts today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, can you turn with me to Romans chapter 2, please? Romans chapter 2, go back a little bit. Uh, the outline is in one of the handouts you received as you came in. Um, in the middle of that you've got a, you've got a handout there. Uh, Romans chapter 2 in your church Bibles is on page 1132. And we're working from verse 6, because where we left off at verse 5 last week. Why do you Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God? Surely I can be saved from following my own religion. Whatever that is. Anyone ever said that to you? Or what about this? You Christians make God out to be unjust when you say you only save those who trust in the Lord Jesus. I mean, what about those who never heard of him? Would it be fair for God to send them to hell just because they lived in ancient Mongolia and never got the chance to hear? Huh? All this. It doesn't matter what you believe. What's important is what you do. If you live a good life, God will reward you with heaven at the end, whether you believe in Jesus or not. Well, the passage that we're looking at today addresses these and a number of other issues. Now, before we see that, though, what we need to do is understand the passage on its own terms. Two weeks ago, we saw that the gospel is God's power for the salvation of those who believe. This was stated in chapter 1, verse 16 of the book of Romans. We saw in verse 17 that the reason it is God's power for the salvation of those who believe was that the righteousness of God was revealed in it. God's righteousness was God's acquittal. God's God's giving us a righteousness that does not belong to us, but belongs to Christ. And he's saying, not guilty to us at the end. That is something that comes to us by faith. And the question then arose, which is what the 118 to the end of where we're looking at deals with, is why does it have to be by faith? You see, 118 starts with the word for. The answer is answering the question, why is is the last statement true? Why is righteousness by faith? Why is it not by some other means? Like maybe obeying the law, or living a good moral life, 
or some particular religious practices. And last week we began, we began to see some of the answers. Now, I'd like to say, if you weren't here last week, the, Romans is a sustained argument. Okay, it's a sustained argument. If you weren't here last week, uh, I know a lot of people were away because of the long weekend. Can I just recommend, maybe you just see if you can download the, uh, the, uh, the talk from the, from the internet and have a listen so that you can see the, the logic of the sustaining of the argument. Okay? But lastly, we saw very briefly that God is rightly angry because of human sin. Human beings have suppressed the truth about God, that God has built into us and into the world around us that should tell us about him. It's called general revelation. And we all suppress it. We do so to avoid giving God what is due. We as a human race and we as individuals fail to treat God properly. And God is so good and so holy and so righteous and so great that, that the failing to treat him properly, that is like the most awful thing that we could imaginably do. And yet we keep on doing it. We don't honor God the way that he deserves. We don't thank him, obey him, trust him and glorify him. Instead what we've done is created idols in his place. We become sexually immoral in all kinds of ways. We become people who fail to treat each other properly as well in all kinds of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice and envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, God-hating, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, evil inventing, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. is all manifest in our actions. And as we saw, such things deserve death. That was chapters 1, verses 18 to 32. Now, a Jew who was reading that passage would have been thinking, those wicked Gentiles. Those sins are really what those Gentiles do. And yes, they deserve death for them. Now, actually, what Paul is writing here applies both to Jews and Gentiles. But the Jew who read this would probably be thinking, Gentiles. And so in their minds... 118 to 132 is those wicked, idolatrous Gentiles out there. And probably those moral Gentiles who are reading this would have thought that at first as well. Just referring to those wicked ones. You know, the moral Gentiles, the people who generally live a decent and upright and honorable life, right, compared to the idolaters and the sexually immoral out there. I mean, we all know people like that, don't we? Nice man or lovely lady of another religion or even our own seems moral and respectable. Well, chapter 2, verse 1 to 5 was written to the so called moral people who might have been reading chapter 1 and thought they were okay, and then they read chapter 2 like you did last week and you went back and looked carefully at chapter 1 and you realized that they weren't. Even they didn't treat God properly. Even they didn't treat others properly. Even they were unmissive. Even they were facing God's wrath on the day he comes to judge the world. Again, what Paul is writing can apply equally to the moral Jews, the religious Jews, and the moral Gentiles, but in fact in some ways it would be even more applicable to the Jews, but they're probably still thinking Gentiles. Well, I put Gentiles in inverted commas in your handouts. Right? Jews are still thinking the wicked Gentiles and then the moral Gentiles. And they'll be saying, good on you, Paul. You've shown those Gentiles. Whether they considered 
moral or otherwise by the society around, they're all sinful. And so even though what Paul's writing could actually apply to him, the Jewish reader was thinking that he wasn't part of this, that he was okay. But why could a Jew think he was okay? He could think he was okay because he had God's law. And so Paul's going to deal with the place of the law. But before he does this, he's going to lay some groundwork. He needs to explain the basis of God's judgment. And he says this, God's judgment will be completely fair. God's judgment will be absolutely fair, absolutely impartial. It will be done exactly on what we have done. Chapter 2, verse 6. He will render, so he's talking about the day of wrath and God's righteous judgment will be revealed at the end of verse 5, and he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and then the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Gentile, or the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Isn't that interesting? We put a few on the diagram. There you go. On the left hand side, you've got those who do good, on the right hand side, those who do evil. And if you're a Jew and you do good, Eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. If you're Gentile, you do good. Eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. If you do evil and you're a Jew, wrath and fury, tribulation, and distress. If you do evil and you're a Gentile, wrath and fury, tribulation, and distress. See that? Okay? Fair enough? Fair enough? Fair. Completely impartial. What then are the standards of God's judgment? If there's rewards and punishments according to what we have done, then how do you know what you have to do? Maybe it's God's law that he gave to Moses in the Old Testament. But then, if you're a Gentile, then you may not have heard of this law. How does that work? What if you did live in Inner Mongolia? What if you did live in China or India? Well, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see, God's judgment is completely fair. If you're a Jew and you're under the law, then you'll be judged by the law. You'll be judged by whether or not you heard it, of course. You'll be judged by whether you obey it. And verse 13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. If you don't have the law, and you still sin, well, you will be punished for your sin. But it won't be the law of Moses that's held against you, because, you see, if you, if you don't have the law, you won't be fair to judge you by the law, will it? It'll be unfair. But you still have a conscience. A conscience that's at least partly affected by general revelation. Maybe distorted by sin, in fact it will be, but there is enough there for God to judge you. And so, Paul says in verse 14 to 16, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bear witness in their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts in Christ Jesus. See, friends, God is never unfair. God is never unfair. God won't judge people by what they don't know. He will judge people what they do know about him. The Jews will be judged according to the law they have, because that's what they know. The Gentiles will be judged by according to what's in their hearts, because that's what they know. And so there's justice. Perfect justice for all. So one of those questions that we had at the beginning was, what about people we haven't heard about the Bible and what it says? Will God treat them with justice? And the answer is, of course, God always judges people with justice. God will be fair. God will never punish someone for something they don't know. God will always judge people on the basis of what they do know and what they've done with it. He will judge everyone, all our ancestors, all the people in the jungles, wherever they are, based on what they've done. And no one can argue with that. No one can say to God in the last day, God, you weren't fair to me. God will always be fair. But at the same time, that does not give us much cause for optimism. Because the human heart is sinful. And judged fairly, we would naturally be condemned whether by law or by conscience. Back to the main argument. We've all seen that the Gentiles do evil, not just the really evil ones out there, but also the so-called moral Gentiles as well. And so when it comes for judgment, the Gentiles are heading for wrath and fury. The Jews would have been okay with that. And then, okay, and then we saw that God's judgment is perfectly just, and the basis of work's done. The Jews would have thought, yeah, I'm okay with that as well. But then hang on. If God judges the Jews in the same way as the Gentiles, that is according to what they've done, how's it how's it going to affect them? Will they be condemned as well, like the Gentiles? I thought, ah, well, may, 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 maybe not. Right? Maybe we're better off because we've got God's law. We learn the law, we rely on the law, we try to obey the law, it keeps us right with God. You know, we're meant to be a light for the nations, the law will go out from Jerusalem. And unlike the Gentiles, we are circumcised, just like the law commanded. Surely that will count for something on the judgment day. We are the people of God, we've got the law, we've got the circumcision. Surely being Jewish and having the law, that will make us okay. And Paul speaks to them again, quite directly, about being judged by the law in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide for the blind and a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, the Jews had the law, but they don't keep it. They taught the law to others, but they can't keep the law themselves. They told others not to steal, and they bought pirated DVDs. They told others not to commit adultery, and they committed adultery with their eyes on the internet. They told others not to worship idols, and they committed sacrilege against the holy God. They didn't really keep the law, did they? They were just like the Gentiles, really, in their behaviour. And so their circumcision wouldn't really mean anything. Verse 25. Well, circumcision is of deed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcised. If you don't keep the law, then you're no better than an uncircumcised Gentile. So, verse 26. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his circumcision be regarded as uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but the one but the Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, Paul says, look, don't, don't, don't place your hopes on your Jewishness and on your circumcision, all the outside things. You know? If you want to, oh, you want to come to God by the law, it only works if you obey the whole law from the heart. It's just not a matter of just circumcising yourself and just doing a few hours. And none of you do that. In fact, an uncircumcised Gentile, if he kept the spirit of the law, would be in a better position than you. Let's just recap a bit. We've already seen the Gentiles are under judgment. Then we saw that God judges without partiality. And that for the Jews, having the law and circumcision and being Jewish was not enough. So what does that mean? It means the Jews must be under the same judgment as well. You see the logic there? And the conclusion then must be that the Jews and the Gentiles are equally under sin and equally facing God's anger. That is what Paul wants us to realize here. But before he states that conclusion, he stops his argument to take a few imaginary questions that he knows his readers will be asking. It's like he's taking a little break for Q&A, right? that will go from chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, before he goes back to his conclusion in, uh, in verse 9. Right? There's a tangent that leads to another tangent that leads to another tangent that goes right away from the argument and then, it come, then, then he'll come back. So there's this question and answer session. It's not contributing to the main argument of the letter. It's just a break. So we're going to do something a bit different then. Uh, and we're going to be as if we're having that Q&A session now. All right? So I'm going to be Paul. Yes, my Paul suit. Right. I'm Rabbi Paul. Something like that. Right. And I'm going to say, looking at chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, any questions so far? Can we get a mic over there for this person who wants to ask a question? Ah, Rabbi Paul, ah, I have a question for you, ah. 
You have just said that a Gentile who keeps the law will be better off than a Jew who has the law but doesn't keep it. If that's the case, what's the point of having the law? If God is going to judge with perfect justice according to what we have done and the Gentiles will be judged by what they do know rather than by the law that only the Jews know, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And if circumcision is useless, if you don't obey the whole law, what is the value of circumcision? Has God just taken his people on a wild goose chase for the past 2,000 years? In other words, what advantage has a Jew? Or what value is circumcision? Verse 1. Thank you for your question. What is the advantage of the Jew? Much in every way. Verse 2. Lots of positives about being a Jew. Right? To begin with, as is written in the text, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, I see your translation to begin with there. Uh, the word translated to begin with there can either mean firstly or above all. And since there is no secondly or thirdly in my argument, it should have been obvious that I meant above all. So what I call on saying to you is that the most important advantage of being a Jew is that we Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That is, we're entrusted with God's word. You see, we had the Old Testament scriptures. Scriptures that should have led us to Christ. But most of the Jews didn't come to Christ. Because most of them were not true Jews. External Jews only, not Jews in the heart. May or may not have been religious, may or may not have been, but, 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 but certainly unfaithful to God's word. And so the best thing about being a Jew, greatest advantage of being a circumcised one, was they had not only the general revelation of God, but the special revelation in Scripture. And yet they weren't even faithful to that. Well, that raises another question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God that you wrote in verse 3, 4? Is that what you're saying? That the Jews are unfaithful to the scriptures and so God's promises in the Old Testament are nullified? Are you saying that the Jews being unfaithful have wiped out the promises of Abraham and to David? Does the fact that the Jews were unfaithful mean that God will not be faithful? By no means. Verse 4. Let God be true, but everyone a liar. God is faithful to his word, even if everyone's not faithful to his. And I pointed you to Psalm 51 to back this up. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Back in Psalm 51, David has committed a terrible crime uh, and he's confessing his sins to God. He's confessing what he's done so it is clear that God is right even when he judges him. David himself was unfaithful, but God was faithful to his word. He said he would punish evil, he punished David. And yet he made promises to David and he kept those promises. And so in the midst of David's sin, God was shown to be righteous. 
God was indeed faithful, both to his promises to bless and his promises to punish. And so he was justified, he was shown to be righteous in his judgment on David's sin. David's unfaithfulness did not nullify the faithfulness of God. And neither then does the unfaithfulness of the Jews. God would still keep the promise to their ancestors, and he's done so actually, hasn't he, by sending them to Jesus. And at the same time, God will judge them as he promised. And so really, in the midst of their sin, God is actually shown to be just. He's shown to be righteous. And his glory is seen in the midst of their sin. Next question. Hey, uh, Paul, uh, what are you implying? Are you saying that David's sin, and by extension Israel's sin, actually brought glory to God by showing him righteous and faithful in dealing with it? Sin has ended up bringing glory to God. So sin has turned out to be a good thing, hasn't it? And if sin turns out to be a good thing, how can God punish us for it? For if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human terms according to your verse 5. Thank you. Thank you for your question. And my answer then is in verse 6. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? See, God is a judge of the world. That means he must punish sin. Now, I agree that he even used the, the sinfulness of man to bring glory to himself by his just and righteous response. But you cannot then work backwards and say that sin is a good thing. And therefore God cannot punish people for it. Whatever the implication of the fact that God's glory is shown in the way he deals with sin, we know that injustice is not an implication. God will judge the world justly and will glorify himself by making his justice, righteousness and faithfulness known. Oh, wait, 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 wait. But Paul, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Which you wrote in verse 7. And then, in verse 8, you said, And why not do evil that good may come? If God's faithfulness is shown by the way he deals with my unfaithfulness, then why condemn me, huh? It, it glorifies him, doesn't it? Isn't that a good thing? And in fact, why not do more evil so that my God will punish more and be shown to be more faithful and be Glorified more Allah. Isn't that what you've been saying, huh? I heard, what, I heard that's what you preach in, you know, when you write your stuff. What? Do evil that good may come? That is certainly not what I teach. And anyone who claims that is a slanderer. And God will justly condemn them for their slander. Listen, I am saying that God is glorified by his judgment on sinners. I am certainly not saying that we should therefore go and sin. And I'm not saying that God can't judge us if that makes him look good. Why those things are wrong? Where that logic breaks down? Well, I'll address it later on in the letter of the Romans. But now, thank you very much for your questions, and we'll get back to the main argument. Now, just before we go back to the main argument, can I request that none of those photos go on Facebook? Alright? <laughs> it's already been sent, is it? <laughs> okay. 
Now, we've gone off the excursus, we'll come back to the main, the main, uh, the main argument in Romans. All right? Remember the first question that Paul was asked uh, back in chapter 3, verse 1. Is there any advantage of being a Jew? Right? And his answer was, yes, because they have the Old Testament. But we've already seen that they don't keep the Old Testament. And so he asked another question in verse 9. What then, are the Jews any better off? Are they really better off? Not at all. You see, they have the advantage of the Scriptures, but they end up no better off. Because the law didn't save them. And so here's where he really comes to it, the conclusion of chapters 1 and 2, and he says, it at the, uh, and he says that at, in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. You see, neither the Jew nor the Gentile really treats God as God. The Jew expresses this by failing to keep the law of Moses. The Gentiles express this by failing to keep the law on their hearts. God's standard on their hearts. And so everyone, both Jew and Gentile, is under sin, from verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All are turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you remember that? That's a quote from Psalm 14, our Old Testament reading today. And in that psalm, God is poetically depicted as, as looking down from heaven to see if there's anyone on earth who is good. And there isn't. Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. Paul has already shown that in his arguments, and he adds more quotes from the Old Testament which speak of human sin, just to pile it up. He says, verse 13, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the situation. And so if we go back to the, 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 the table that we had, Look at it again. The table shows there is perfect justice. No partiality with God. Jews, Gentiles alike, judged alike. The person in the opening illustration who said, if you live a good life, God will reward you with heaven at the end. Well, they're actually partly right, aren't they? Look at the left column. Those who do good, yes, eternal life, glory and honor and peace. But in light of what we've read, how many people do you think will be on the left-hand side of that table? How many people do you think fit in the category of those who do good? Well, for the Jewish, for the Gentile role, we saw their sinners. Gentiles do evil. For the Jewish role, same thing. And we saw confirmed from Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks, all have turned away. Yes, God will judge with perfect justice. Yes, there will be eternal life and glory and honor and immortality and peace for those who do good, no matter what background. But there isn't anyone like that. The left-hand column is there, but no one fits into it. It's empty. There is no one righteous, not even one. We are all sinners, all evildoers. 
We're all on the right-hand side of that chart. Whether Jews or Gentiles, whatever family, whatever country, whatever religion we were born in. And so what ought to await each one of us on the judgment day is wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. That's what Romans is telling us. God is angry with sin. God is angry with sinners and we are by nature sinners. And we will face God's judgment at the end. So, there's the problem, isn't it? That's the whole problem that the book of Romans is setting up. How are we going to be acquitted on that last day? Should we try really hard to keep God's law? Would that be any good? Well, the law couldn't save the Jews. They failed to keep it. And so would we. The law would simply show us how sinful we are. Keeping the law wasn't going to justify any Jew. And it's not going to justify any one of us who tries to obey it either. It's not going to make us righteous. All the law can do is show us that we are sinners. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. See, the point of the law is not to make us right with God. It is so that the Jews who are under the law will know they are sinners like the rest of mankind. And if we think that we are not sinners, all we need to do is look at the law and we'll have to shut up. It's like a mirror that we hold up to our lives and shut fire. We see how grubby our faces are. We see our sin. The law showed Israel they were sinners. The law shows us we are sinners as well. Law keeping or any other good works to be saved. It's just not possible for us. Even if we try harder and harder and harder, we will just keep on failing more and more and more. That is just moralism and it leads to despair. Verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No way to be justified by the law. By the law, we are guilty. Guilty as hell. And I'm not swearing. So the law is not going to help us in God's courtroom on the day of judgment. It will just condemn us. Now, of course, if we keep the law perfectly, we will be acquitted by the law. But obviously we don't. So things are looking hopeless. We're guilty, we know. And if we are found guilty by the court at the end of the age, we will face God's wrath forever. And so we desperately look around. Is there any other way? Is there any way of securing the plea not guilty? Is there anything anyone can do for us now? You see how the answer, this is, we've come to answering the question that, that came up for us right at the beginning. Why does the righteousness of God need to be by faith? In chapter 1 verse 17, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why can't our acquittal, was the question, come by any other means like obeying the law or having a good moral life or following some strict religious practice of any sort? And we've seen the answer very clearly now, haven't we? We are sinners, God is just. And the law and any attempt at morality would, would simply leave us condemned. But in the next few verses, Paul goes on to explain another way of acquittal. Or to put it differently, a different kind of righteousness. A righteousness that is very different from the righteousness that we failed to attain. 
An acquittal that is very different from the kind of acquittal that the law could not give us. And it's the kind of acquittal that is not offered in any other religion. This acquittal, this righteousness, comes from God as a gift. It comes because Jesus died to take our sins and our guilt on Himself. We're not talking about justice anymore. Justice is done. We're now talking about grace. Grace is on top of justice. Do you want justice? No chance. Now we're talking about grace. We're talking about how God, in His generous mercy, will save some people whose justice has said deserves to be condemned. Remember how in Psalm 14 God looked upon humanity and found no one righteous? Well, let me say, that righteous God Himself took our humanity and became one of us in the person of Jesus. Jesus lived that perfect life. The life of obedience that we were meant to live. He was truly righteous. And so He alone deserved glory and honor and immortality But instead, he suffered shame and suffering and death as he hung upon the cross. For on the cross, he took our sin and our punishment on himself. The wrath and fury, the tribulation and distress that each one of us richly deserved fell upon him as he hung up there for us. He died for us. So that we who trust in him and are therefore united with him spiritually, can have all the benefits of his life and death. So that we can be acquitted on that last day because of his perfect life and his death on our behalf. So that we can have an acquittal, a righteousness that, thank God, does not depend on our performance in keeping the law. It's a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ who died for us. It is free, it is perfect, and it means that we can be perfectly accepted by God if we trust in Him. Do join us next week as we look at that wonderful rescue that God accomplished for us on the cross. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that your Spirit has given us through the Apostle Paul. We thank you that you have shown us uh, in this word that not only are we guilty, but we are deserving of your judgment. And yet we know, Heavenly Father, that we do have hope. Not because of justice, but because of your mercy and grace. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us the gift of your Son to die on the cross in our place so that we who are perfectly deserving of wrath and condemnation and fury and tribulation may instead receive that glory and honor and immortality that we do not deserve. Help us to keep realizing more and more clearly what great danger we were in when we were away from you. And was never to take that lightly or for granted that 
but help us to really appreciate that salvation that you've won for us in Jesus. Help us to appreciate more and more not only our sinfulness, but your strict and impartial justice. And help us to appreciate more and more, therefore, your wonderful grace that you have poured upon us. Guilty and undeserving sinners. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for that love, for that grace, and for the wonderful forgiveness, the acquittal that you have given us in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would never, never, never take that for granted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.